Okay, good morning. And welcome to Sashin Day number two. Uh, how many were here yesterday? Yeah, okay, good. Most of you. And how many are new today? All right, welcome. <laughs> Every day's a new day for you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> good. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to start out with a poem that I wrote uh, some time ago. And yesterday we were talking about um, open heart awakening and having open heart and what that meant. And um, awakening to uh, through the body, uh, through how we are embodied. And so I have this poem and if there's something in it that's helpful for you, then take that in and if not, that's okay too. So it's called The Deep, okay? No one can guide you into your dark, moist interior where bamboo could sink itself into you, creating private places. Your innermost earth has no words, so it will not call you. No, the deep does not speak, think, or take action. It mysteriously leads you if you will let it, to familiar rhythms played within. Eventually, you will go unafraid into your life, feeling into the dark without doubt that your heart is open. I'll, I'll read that to you later on. So we will have questions and answers again uh, later. Um, after the talk, so I'll be given a signal to stop if I haven't stopped <laughs> before then to um, get questions from you. I think it's important that we have some dialogue today. So uh, many of us been sitting today, and I will read yesterday's quote, and then I have a new one uh, from the book to uh, talk about today. So yesterday we talked, we I presented this quote. There is nothing more dominant than the true nature of life. And this is from the book, The Way of Tenderness, um, that I wrote, uh, Awakening Through Race, Sexuality, and Gender. So again, there is nothing more dominant than the true nature of life. Our bodies, physically and spiritually, are part of that very nature. Therefore, awakening to the challenges of race, sexuality, and gender begins in the body, where we struggle. Awakening is to open our hearts wide enough to see the perfection in the tensions as the path to liberation. Awakening is to open our hearts wide enough to see the perfection in the tensions as the path to liberation. And so we talked yesterday about um, kind of wanting to come into a spiritual path to relax and, and not to have any tension whatsoever and to be more um, calm or uh, these different things that um, we search for. Uh, I think that that is not 
always uh, the case, you know, as some of us know that it's not always calm and there's a lot of tension. But for some, there is calm. So I want to give that to those who uh, do have calm and relaxation. Um, but to those who come uh, to the practice, because there, are, there is uh, uh, storms and hurricanes and earthquakes within your life, then, uh, you know, your personal life, then may perhaps some of these teachings may help. And I am particularly uh, looking at race, sexuality, and gender awakening in that way on a spiritual path. Um, because oftentimes it's not talked about. And uh, for me, it definitely, sh my embodiment shaped the spiritual quest for me, um, no matter where, what spiritual path I was on. But especially on the Dharma, it was important for me to bring myself to it as I was and who I am in order to find that place in which to uh, transform and change and to move forward. So today's quote I'd like to, us to focus on is um, this one. And <clears throat> this one, I'm not even sure if it's in the book, tell you the truth. <laughs> I think this one kind of came later. <laughs> so I'm not positive and there's no index in my book to find it. So. Oneness is itself. Oneness is itself. We are not one in the sense of each other. We are one in the oneness. Sounds very Zen, huh? You're kind of like, oh no. We are one in the oneness. And I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more. We do not create diversity. It already is. And therefore, when we speak of race, sexuality, and gender, we are speaking of the natural multiplicity of oneness, constructed or otherwise. When we ignore the systemic suffering and unacceptable differences between us, we ignore the oneness. Okay, so I'm going to read it one more time. Oneness is itself. We are not one in the sense of each other. We are one in the oneness. That kind of like decreases the superiority of human, <laughs> right, in that, in that sentence. We do not create diversity. It already is. And therefore, when we speak of race, sexuality, and gender, we are speaking of the natural multiplicity of oneness, constructed or otherwise. When we ignore the systemic suffering and unacceptable differences between us, we ignore the oneness. Okay. So um, when I uh, wrote, we are not one in the sense of each other, which is really the, the kind of how we imagine oneness, you know, often, and that we are one in the oneness, is that in the oneness, everything alive, everything is formed, comes from a particular source. And we're all from that source of life. A flower and you and me are from the same source of life. A bird, everything that is from the same source. And that is the oneness. And so oftentimes when uh, conversations come up between us about how we are embodied in the suffering uh, for some of us in that, then oftentimes it's considered, oh no, now we're going to another place. This is not oneness, this is not spiritual, this is not harmony, this is none of these things that we're supposed to be looking for on a path of spirit. And um, when I, I think 
when I heard uh, that kind of comment, or rather when I felt it, because sometimes it's not very explicit, it's very unspoken that what to say and not to say on a spiritual path. It's kind of like you're either ignored or, you know, um, you know, maybe someone says, work on that, or there's just, <laughs> you know, just a little kind of um, dismissal <laughs> of it. And so I, I don't feel like I was directly dismissed, you know, from talking about things. I just felt inside an energy that, and within um, uh, the path of Dharma to not speak of it. Um, to speak of it often says sometimes to people, you're not spiritually evolved. You haven't gotten anywhere. You know, you're still stuck. And, that, and that's the message I got. Now, how I got that message, I don't know, but I got it. That that was um, that. And those who don't speak about it are evolved and enlightened. And so that didn't feel right to me. Because most of the people who were speaking about it were people of color. And most of the people, people of color in this, who were mostly raised in this country, you know, and then people who weren't speaking about it were not people of color. Um, and so it gave the uh, impression that everyone who wasn't a person of color was at peace and carried the peace, and that the people of color carried the suffering and the anxiety and the violence and all of this, this um, discontentment, not satisfied. And so um, this began my path to um, say, uh, I felt that to be untrue. And I think all of us know this is you know, a myth, you know, that it's untrue. That um, even if you're quiet about the struggle of differences, we all know that that doesn't mean you're at peace with it. You're just quiet about it. But it still wanted to deal with the myth of that. And so oftentimes, um, and, and at the Zen Center in San Francisco, something would happen to someone. And uh, or it could be anyone, really, whether it's a person of color or not, around race, sexuality, or gender, it would be considered a personal injury that happened um, to that someone, and everyone would go immediately to, to work on that, you know, with a good heart, open heart, to work on that personal injury. And um, I really got the sense of when I came in to be Shu So, um, which is a head student in uh, 2012, uh, they had just had one of these incidents <laughs> when I walked into the door um, where um, people had been hurt by uh, something someone said and the person was of color. And so uh, I could tell they had, I knew the person because I knew they had called them in and graciously tried to talk about the incident. And, and so I finally got very um, aggravated and I was wondering what my aggravation was. <laughs> And I realized, because when I walked in the door, that it wasn't just this one person's injury, it was an injury to the entire uh, Sangha. So when there's one injury, it's a collective one. And it must be dealt collectively. What would have happened if that would have just been something that the whole Sangha dealt with, and what we would have learned through the Dharma, 
you know, could the teachers come with the Dharma around that issue so that we all would learn something about how to deal with each other when the challenges are race, sexuality, and gender, and, and on. You know, I, I don't stop there, but it is on class. All of this is involved um, when you're marginalized, any place of marginalization. And I just thought we several times missed an opportunity to um, move ahead, not only as a Sangha, but to turn the will of Dharma, as we always want to do, is to continue turning it. We have to turn it past the 2,500 years ago with Buddha. You know, we have to keep turning it because that's just in the past. Although his teachings are fundamental and essential and uh, truthful, it still has to be shaped to the conditions by which we live, the conditions and the people in the country by which we live. It must be shaped by that. And so I began to um, really uh, kind of witness these things, and I don't think anybody knew I had uh, anything to say about it until I wrote the book, <laughs> The Way of Tenderness. I think it was probably a big surprise uh, to some that I even would write a book, such a book, because um, I didn't really speak about it often at Zen Center. I wasn't considered one of those people who even spoke of diversity or any of these things. But the more they spoke about it and the more it, it, it was aggravating, to the Sangha and to myself, I began to say, what is this aggravating space and why, when we have these teachings, you know, why can the teachings speak to um, uh, this situation we have as human beings? And if it couldn't, um, then I was wondering what, um, what, would he, what would we become and could we continue on into another uh, century? as uh, Soto Zen practitioners, um, and what would it take? And so I kind of wrote this book out of uh, you know, that, that place, and I wrote it as a, a, a question. The whole book is a question, really. It's an, a quest and an exploration, and I wanted folks to join me in that and to see if we could um, actually bring up some of these uh, teachings about um, who we are and how we are together as people. As I saw the, uh, the core uh, teaching for Buddha was interrelationship for, to me. And that's in the interrelationship and being aware of that is the liberation um, that we seek. It's not liberation from our own alone, you know, our own suffering alone. I like the way uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote once, and I think I might have even put, I don't know if I put it in the book or not, or which book I put it in, because <laughs> I have another book, uh, Tell Me Something About Buddhism, that he, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote a forward to, so sometimes I get a little confused of what book this is in, but he always says that when you walk into a meditation space or any place you walk into, you bring your friends, your community, your family, and your ancestors. You know, so when you're walking in, it's not a solo, uh, you know, endeavor. Even though it can feel like that, that's what got you in the door. You know, when you can't, and maybe you can't imagine your mother or your father sitting here, or your brother or your sister sitting here, only you, because <laughs> you're here, but you're bringing them through you and how you live life and how you see and how you speak and how you're, you're bringing them 
how you sit, how you look from your eyes. It's your parents. You know, it's all here. So we get to all see each other's people, too, when we see each other. And it's really a large landscape, isn't it? It's really huge to look out and see all of that, just in each other. And so I, um, I, I think that is core to uh, community building and core to sangha building and, um, and core to the understanding that there is a multiplicity in the oneness, that um, how we are embodied is um, part of that, you know, uh, oneness and part of nature as how we are and how we can come from that base and use that as a, a, a jumping off ground to talk about um, the situation. And yesterday I was talking about oftentimes we talk when we're in uh, a spiritual environment and we begin to talk about race, sexuality, and gender, we begin to suddenly go to the political. And um, when I think that's fine, I don't think there's a problem with it. But there's also um, hoping me, I hope for beyond that. I hope for uh, us to use the teachings um, that I felt um, to me spoke the word of God, can I say? <laughs> you know, when I, when I found um, the Dharma, I said, oh, there's God. Yeah, I got it. You know, this, <laughs> there it is, even though I was raised in a church and I stayed in church most of my adult life. So and then switch to uh, Buddhism. So, um, so I thought it important to um, bring these uh, lessons um, that I learned. They're lessons I learned by who I am. So other people will have other lessons and I invite people to uh, not just walk the teachings. Like I, I have a, a, a few students are all here sometimes um, I can tell almost what book they read, you know, by the, by the way they're speaking, you know, about certain things. And I wonder, really, what does bodhisattva mean? What does a Zen mind mean to them? What is beginning mind? Um, what are these things, these words they're using? What does it mean to their life? So you have a meaning of them in your head, but what does it mean in your life? And can you uh, walk that way based on your, your uh, you know, embodiment? Um, we read the Heart Sutra, right? And we're going to chant that later today. We chanted it yesterday um, in the English version of it. And that sutra was very important to me when I first came into Zen practice. Uh, when I saw it, there was a, you know, the, the, the no part was interesting. Uh, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no nothing, you know, and I'm like, I suddenly felt very, very calm and relaxed by chanting that and very much in my heart, but I couldn't understand why, you know, what that was. And um, so it became one of those sutras I really uh, try to study, still study and still teach. You know, when people sit with me, we start there. And there's some beautiful books out on it now. Kaz Tanahashi has a wonderful book on the Heart Sutra out now, classical, classical book. And, um, um, uh, Dalai Lama has a great one too on Heart Sutra. There's, there are many in Thich Nhat Hanh. There are many books on it. And so, um, but the books have one interpretation of that sutra and then our lives will have another. So, you know, what is, what is being in the heart? What is a perfect heart, you know, place? And um, 
and what is this no stuff about, you know, um, and including the no self, you know, what is that all about then and the emptiness and, you know, all of these things. And uh, at first I was very frightened of all that later because I said, are they telling me I can't be anything or be anyone, you know? And um, I later believed as I practiced that that wasn't um, the case. And the case was still based in that interrelationship that the no self and, and the no, you know, remember the Heart Sutra is to espouse compassion. So that's what I felt. So Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when deeply practicing Prajna Paramita, clearly saw that all five aggregates were empty and thus relieved all suffering. So there was a way in which it's like not that there's nothing, but there's no delineation between us. So there, it's not just my eyes, and it's your eyes, and everyone else's eyes, so, there's, so that you have compassion. So if you read that and you feel empty, like annihilate, like you're not yourself, I think you kind of miss what's being espoused there in, that, in the Heart Sutra, which is the compassion, which is where we start in this practice, because practicing is difficult. Sitting here is difficult. Being silent, you know, doing all these things is very difficult. It can be very strange. So you have to have compassion for yourself to be able to even do that. You have to start there in your heart. You know? So the no, is, to me, is the no delineation. No de delineation between your eyes and my eyes. You know? and um, your consciousness and mine, you know, it's, it's one collective place. Co-passion, co-passion, co-together, not your passion, co-compassion, together. And so it's a beautiful sutra. When you chant it, um, try to bring that up inside yourself, your interrelationship with others, rather than just knowing the words, you know. I have some students that memorized it right away. And I said, well, it took me like two or three years. You know, they're done in one week, you know, when they had it all memorized, you know, very good. But what does it mean? You know, what does it mean? And how are you going to use it and walk with it? What does it mean when it says, without hindrance, there is no fear? Doesn't that kind of pique your interest? No fear? Well, I want to work on that without hindrance, no fear. Without hindrance, there is no fear. That's pretty powerful to me. And then there's this mantra, gate, gate, in the end, go beyond, go beyond, pushing us, part of some, gate, yeah, it's beautiful. So it's really to push us into this place, help us be in this place that we already exist in this oneness, just as we are in this multiplicity. And yes, we can speak of it all and um, bring ourselves, as Suzuki Roshi said, fully to the practice. Bring all your emotions. Bring all of who you are to the practice. Because if you can't see yourself, and no one can see you either, I don't know how you're going to be helped along. How you gonna, who's going to walk with you? Invisible person. <laughs> you know, who's, how are you going to be joined you know, in the practice? And so that is... Um, the um, one of the cores that keep me 
putting myself out there sometimes and then being afraid. I mean, I was just definitely under the blankets when I wrote this book. A lot of people are so beautiful, but I was like, oh, I was very nervous, you know, about it because I felt I was talking about some things that I felt we misunderstand. We, we love the absolute truth. I love it too. It's just beautiful. I love the absolute truth. And we don't have to become it. It is just is as it is. There's no need to become it. You know, there's no spiritual supremacy. No one is above and no one is below. And any sage or prophet would tell you that in a moment. This does not, it's not. And even if you can do all the forms perfectly and the other person cannot, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Because once they learn it, then they got more to learn. So it doesn't end anyway. You know, so these kinds of things in the material world are put before us to have those perfection of tension that I talked about. Um, there's a perfection in the tension because it teaches you, you know, it teaches you to uh, stay awake for one. And the other thing is, how are you going to deal with it? The same way you did yesterday or the day before? And how can you deal with it that's not going to breed more suffering? More suffering. So, um, to keep, <laughs> I have no time here in my vision, so. I'll just say something. So a lot of times when we talk about differences, um, everybody says, yes, we're all different. And I love it. I love the different and beautiful things in the world. And we're all different. And isn't that beautiful, you know, magnificent? And yes, it is. Uh, you know, that's the absolute truth. Yes. But when um, there are, and we move to the unacceptable differences, is that when we begin to struggle with each other, that we have un unacceptable differences. And we have a lot of them in our culture. And so um, when we um, ignore the suffering of that, then, um, like I said, we ignore the oneness. and. Um, I had an opportunity to lead a class around this a little bit at the Zen Center. And um, one um, friend said to me, um, you know, and he was white and male. He says, I really love you. And I really, I really don't have any problems with you. I feel really good. And I feel like we have a good relationship. And he, it was a class like this. A, a whole room of people, and I said, "Yeah, I, and that's great." And I, you know, I know we're related here, and we have made a friendship. And uh, and so he says, "So I don't really feel like I really have to talk about this subject here with you, because I feel good. I really feel good with you." And I said, "And I want you to to I accept that, and thank you. And I also want you to look at that I'm in a Zen center, and I'm robed." And I'm also teaching <laughs> in the front of the class. And all of these things make me a tad bit more acceptable. Now, I wonder if I were on the street. No one, when I get on the street, no one, I'm just a black ball headed woman on the street. <laughs> I'm not anything other than that. And that's the same with you. You're just who you are. You're not, there's no teachers, no students. There's just you when you're out, when you go out the door. And no one knows you're even interested in Zen or Buddhism or any of these things. So we all experience that. 
So I asked him, I said, so um, because he was a friend, I said, because you're my friend, can I push you a little bit? And he says, yes. And I said, so what I'd like you to um, think about and feel is what if I really started talking about how much I suffer and how much I've suffered or that I'm suffering, you know, based on, you know, how I look and um, how would you feel about the relationship? Because we haven't had that discussion, right? And he, he said, yeah, that would be pretty hard. You know, that would be difficult. And I said, and that's where the work is. Because be, us being friends, that's cool. We don't have to work at that. It's just, it's there. You know, we're, we're buddies. But the work is further than that. You know, the work is where we suffer. You know, where there's unacceptable pieces of the difference. And so, um, and it's hard and it's difficult. But it, like I said yesterday, I feel like it's uh, the greatest pathway you know, for uh, us as human beings to be who we are, you know, so different than uh, each other and to, and to work at the, where the differences um, become uh, pro uh, problematic for each other, where we can't quite, you know, look into the face of each other. Um, I, I believe uh, Suzuki Roshi's dream completely was to is what is happening now and um i in in soto zen and i believe that um he saw the beauty in the people even though we all have beautiful places zen centers are some of the most beautiful places you know and um and so i think he saw the beautiful people and it could be we could be on the corner and still have this beauty if we could be on the corner you know and just just us, we can still have that beauty uh, felt and experienced and embodied. So this place feels good because it is an embodiment of, of a teaching. It's an embodiment of a, a, a teacher's vision before we were even aware that it, it had happened, this vision, you know, and then we stepped into it. And so, but it is an embodiment as well. And um, so we, I'm just teaching us to appreciate embodiment and to uh, look at the nature of it and to not rush off to trying to be boundless, you know, because the embodiment is in the boundlessness, you know, it's, it's very vast. And so we don't have to rush to it. Um, most of my students get very disappointed when I say there's no graduation. <laughs> There is no diploma. Even a robe isn't a graduation. It's actually probably a devotion. <laughs> you probably need to practice a little more harder than the other people without robes. You gotta work a little harder than everybody else. You know, there just isn't. And we would like that to be, you know, our positions or anything like that. And, um, and but there, it's, it's a way we constantly try to show we've gotten there. It's just kind of, and when we get to that place that we, we need to like make it known how spiritual we are, then step back, step back from that, step back from that edge because you're going into a place that is um, probably will keep you not related to others, you know, to just step back to the place of just being right here in this body, you know, and um, and I think, yes, there have been people who 
have come through the centuries who um, were magnificently awakened. There are those, those rare beings like that. But uh, Yogananda is one of those I always mention, you know. But if you listen to some of his talks, you know, he was on a train trying to help a man understand him being very dark and long hair on, on a, uh, actually he was on the plane in his Indian garb and, you know, he had long hair and he was very dark and, so, and the person next to him was very uncomfortable with that. And so he talks about this conversation he has with him. So even he dealt with the embodiment of himself and how uh, the suffering um, came. Buddha always talks about body in his, um, you just have to look for it, you know. Um, he talks about being an ordinary person, you know, in his, uh, some of his teachings and how afraid he was, you know, as a person. He was a very fearful person. He, he has a whole sutra and it just says, I am afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. It's just teachings like that. I don't have it right here. It's in the other book. <laughs> Tell me something about Buddhism. And I wanted to put that there so folks could know he was a human being and, and he was okay with that. And, but he um, used his life to under, try to understand the nature of life. And that's what this practice is. We're using our life to understand the nature of life and see what, we, what wisdom comes and what compassion comes with the wisdom. You have to have both. You know, wisdom is great. We're very wisdom seekers too. You know, we like to seek wisdom, <laughs> you know, but um, without the compassion, you just have a really big head or something like that. <laughs> We'd be spouting, spout, spouting out all the time, <laughs> you know, so it just it's not grounded in life, grounded in people, grounded between us. So that's a lot of perception and conception, conceptualizing. <laughs> Which I, one of the, I have to say, one of the, um, I got a, um, someone wrote, you know, most of the, the uh, people write about how much they like the book, that if someone wrote how much they didn't write. And um, they were talking about they didn't like that it was full of conceptualization. You know, and he's going on and on and on, he or she, I don't even know who, which it was. And, and, I say, and I had to write back and say, thank you for your very conceptualized letter. <laughs> because it was, he used his concepts too about what he thought Buddhism was. I could tell hadn't practiced too much, just heard about it. And that's one of the things about Buddhism too. Most people feel they already know it. And it's very interesting, the pieces they pick out to say what they know. Very interesting. And, um, all these quotes from Buddha that are not Buddha, and just very interesting. <laughs> I don't think there's any other sage or teacher like that, that people have false quotes out there about what they said. But Buddha got it going on, especially on Facebook, and <laughs> what Buddha said and what he didn't. <laughs> and I just go, <laughs> So um, anyway, I just had to add that on in the end. So I want to open it up for questions, yeah. I don't know where we are time-wise. So. Good, okay. Since it's a sashin, I don't like to go on too much because then you'll think about it the whole rest of the day. Uh-huh. 
it, it was, yeah, it was his experience. I think, you know, it feels good to, um, you know, it's something inherent in practices of silence. You know, um, we're silent <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so um, we don't really have an opportunity to speak with each other very often. And I think that um, it was, it, I was kind of pointing that out to him. We hadn't really had a really conversation, you know, before. Even though I felt, I feel this practice creates a deep intimacy without talking, a very powerful and unusual intimacy of sitting silent and eating silently together and being together very close is, is an incredible intimacy to create without knowing who you are and where you've been and are, you know, what troubled you and what happened to you. Uh, we have something in the practice called way-seeking mind. And uh, each student, I don't know how many in here have given a way-seeking mind talk. Okay, one, two, three, yeah, we got some. So it's a very interesting process, first of all, to even think about what you're going to say. You know, you're talking about how you came to the path, pretty much. But it's interesting, we are kind of sitting with each other for two or three months, maybe, or, you know, and then we start hearing these people talking about their lives, and we're like, Oh my God, yeah, because <laughs> so when the, the, the story or the res, the biography comes up, it changes the relationship, you know, so I, um, it's an interesting um, process to, to listen to people um, and first have our own perception of who they are and then hear their story, you know, about who they are and, um, it's, it's just interesting, you know, to, as a person who now has sat with many students, and when you're a student, you sit with all the students, and um, you don't really get to talk to them unless you're having tea, really. And so we're having tea, and it was amazing to find out wh where people came from, you know, and how they came to the practice. And um, a lot of people came to me because they were actually Christians, and but they were still practicing Dharma, and they, they knew I had practiced Christianity for many years, so we got to talk. And so this is what dialogue does, and I think he was afraid of the dialogue, you know, because it opens up to, now, how am I going to relate to you? Because I was relating to you in the silence, and that was great. <laughs> now you're going to talk about how you suffer. I don't, I don't think so, too much. Yeah, it can be, and, and, and also c cannot be. I mean, sometimes you can talk to people and never know, you know who they are uh, at the same time. So it has to be a particular kind of communication, one that's from the heart, one that's truthful, and, and one that's meaningful, you know, meaningful dialogues. And so um, I'm pretty much like that. Like, people don't call me on the phone and chat because <laughs> they know they're going to you have a deep conversation if they call Zenju. <laughs> so um, I, I've been that way though before I even practice, even at, at parties, I wasn't too good at, with the chit chat. So, uh, yes. Okay, one, two, one, two. You, one, two. Good morning, Eric. I was wondering, how does one let 
Have you seen how the influence of the uh, and authority, especially in relation to uh, spiritual practice, uh-huh. and uh, having to become somewhat of a blind man, prevent bodhicitta from shining? Where does him come from? Uh-huh. Yeah, I, and right now, I feel uh, very reluctant to say much of anything. What does bodhicitta mean to you? So it's it's an awakened heart, you know, having an awakened heart, and and, and we and I can tell you, you know it begins here with yourself, and I think the ego, what the ego does is nothing. The ego's not bad, <laughs> you know. It's um, it's the ego uh, walked us in here, you know, into these. It walks us into these places, and then we go, oh no, you know. <laughs> so it's quite the friend <laughs> that likes to take us places and do things and. Um, based on uh, some kind of, you know, perceived result, <laughs> you know, the ego likes results. And so <laughs> achievement, accomplishment, and these kinds of things. And um, it, it does help us um, with stick to <laughs> you know, it stick to It helps us stick to something, cause it, so it's not a bad thing. It's a thing that we must understand when it leads us to those places in which we suffer, you know, um, then we know that uh, it's taking us down some road we need to move from at this point. And you know, sometimes that's hard to do because the ego's like, well, wait a minute, I've been hanging out with you, I've gotten you into the right places, and now you want to go. So you, it really walks with you. It, it's not going to go away. It's something that I think speaks loudly and, um, and it is kind of opposite from that poem I read where there's something deeper inside us that, uh, where bamboo can grow, and the ego is, doesn't live there. And so um, I heard you say you, you want to help others, you know. And so that, that's, that can be based sometimes in the ego, you know, wanting to help others. And, and the way I learned to help others is simply just um, being who I am. You know, and in being who I am, uh, or moving in the way that I move, um, and learning that some of that through. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, you want to help. Yeah. So how about with you? Have to do it with you. It really still is with you because if you come um, to someone else's life and decide they need help in your mind, then you're imposing upon them if they haven't asked really for your help. You know, I always say that too with um, many people, uh, especially those who are, uh, do a lot of justice work, is to be careful of the movement. The, what movement are you joining? And is it the movement in which you should be uh, in? Are you, if you're, if you're not uh, intimate with that suffering that's going on with that person, and you're not, so we become aware of a particular suffering. And, um, but there's, and then we get engaged with it. But I think we skip over the intimacy of the suffering. So we get aware and then we get engaged. That's number three. But two is developing the intimacy with that particular suffering. So whatever intimacy you have with that suffering, that's where your work is going to be. So some people are in the wrong movement. 
to me. Sometimes they might be someplace else, you know, because it's where you are. I talked about this yesterday. I think uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was intimate with the movement he created with Zen and, you know, with engaged Buddhism, you know, to help people. And, um, and I don't think he started out like, let me help people. He started out, let me respond using the Dharma with, to the war with the teachings that I've learned, you know, as a monk. And so um, that's why he became kind of the first to do the engaged Buddhism, same as Dalai Lama, totally intimate with the suffering of his people, you know. And so I think it's important to watch out whether you're acting upon a situation or you actually are in that situation in which you should become um, a worker in, you know. So just kind of be careful with that. And it's not, and it's all right, and, and it's, it's, it's a good heart to want to help others. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but you have to be careful. Um, a lot of times people learn the Dharma, and then they want to tell everybody about it. You know, they go to a couple of classes, and before you know it, they're a Dharma teacher. And they want to help people, you know, I want to open your eyes. I want to awaken you to what I just learned. And so um, I learned the hard way because <laughs> I lost a really good friend in opening my mouth too soon, you know, trying to help him with his partnership, you know, his relationship. He was telling me about his relationship, and I had some idea, something I learned in Buddhism, you know, it's about yourself and, you know, mirroring, you know, it's mirroring your difficulties about who you are, and this person was not ready for that. And I, today, do not speak to this person, will not speak to me because it was too soon, and I, he didn't ask me for that. He was just talking. That's yeah. Because, yeah. You know, yeah, huh? You make one? That's another reason I stayed quiet, because I made my mistakes. Yeah, but that, it, just because you have, it doesn't mean you have to stay quiet because you've made mistakes. You, you learn from the mistakes and you continue to speak. I'm still speaking, even though that friend is now gone. But I do understand what happened. If I continue, I learned something there. I learned, unless someone asks you for this, or they have come to sit with you. Like, there was no reason for me to be talking. I was invited <laughs> to sit and speak. You know, I was invited by the Zen Center, Brooklyn Zen Center, to come. I didn't just say, hey, and show up. You know, <laughs> I got something to say and a great book for y'all to read, you know. <laughs> you know, it's an invitation and maybe not everybody will invite me and maybe everybody will. But I can't, I don't just show up, you know, so, but it's okay. The mistake doesn't mean you go silent, it means you learn, you know, because if we all went silent from mistakes, I guess we'll all would be, it would be great too. We would always be learning sign language or something. I don't, we'd have to learn something else, some other way because we've all made some serious mistakes. Serious ones, each one of us, you know. But what did you, what, what can you take from it? And you might make the same mistake again and again and again because it's a, it changes shapes. The ego will say, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. Okay, let's try it. Maybe if we do this, maybe if I get a robe, I can do that, you know. <laughs> It'll keep trying, huh? It'll keep trying, you know, a way to keep you going with your motivations. I'm one to two, thank you.
I was really great. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So the way that this yesterday it had a response and a response to man. What is that person taking up too? That would be much better. That person taking up too much space. Talking too much. And immediately, ah, that's because, and historically it's because, and that has been so much of my social, political, uh -huh. historic stuff arose uh -huh. uh -huh. to meet that. Uh -huh. But it's both and, you know, so we're, you're, you're in, the, in the oneness, but you're also uh, collectively. So we often look for, so we go to, oh, now I'm in the people of color sangha, or I'm in the queer sangha, or I'm in the this sangha, women's sangha, you know, <laughs> lawyer sangha. You know, there's a lot of sanghas. And so, <laughs> they are. And so, um, dharma punks, you know. 
we got them going on. So I think that when we then we get in then those sanghas and then we have then it's, there's no other right. And so um, then we become then there's others in the, there are others within that sangha in that cultural sanctuary, too. And so it just it, that othering continues to happen so that you continue to work on the the, the belonging. So nothing nothing uh, has like suddenly you're in paradise because you're in a, a particular group that's where everybody's like you, you think. And so, it, and so uh, you're still working on that same place if you were working here or there. It's just that in those cultural sanctuaries, you're able to maybe speak about it more and more deeply and, and expose yourself more quickly and, and have that opportunity. So I think that that's important. Um, to have that, uh, these cultural sanctuaries. And, and then at the same time, it's important to understand even within the cultural sanctuary that there's a collective, collective, collective beyond, 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 got they, got they, got they, beyond all of that that is also impacting and affecting the cultural sanctuary and you in it. It just really keeps going. It's so you have to be, you understand that. You learn that in, in those sanctuaries. And um, I look, or you, you want uh, teachers who can facilitate that, that liberation rather than facilitating and, and, um, and continuing the wound, you know, continuing to talk about the wound uh, of, of why the cultural sanctuary was created in the first place, you know, because there's some wound there that begins it. And, that, and that's perfectly, that's great to me. And um, to begin where the suffering is, right? And this is where I speak. And so to uh, really look at uh, oneself even in the, in the cultural sanctuary, I think it's more intense and more microscopic because there is no other. And so you feel more intensely, maybe even the oppression, more without you know, the other there. So it's, it's very um, you know, powerful place to be and to have. You know? um, so I uh, understand that's what you're saying. And then, but the oneness has everything, you know, it, you know, has your individual, uh, which feels very individual, you know, um, path. And, but yet your path is, is uh, majorly collective, all of, our, all of us, you know. So um, when we begin to, to see that. We kind of see our collectivity when we do something and the whole song goes crazy or something. We kinda, oh, yes, I guess, ooh, that, you know, like a relationship could take out a whole song. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right? <laughs> you know, I've seen, I, I know of a song that shut down because <laughs> they got divorced, you know. So <laughs> it was, you know, it's really uh, important to know that. And I think I learned it the hard way, too. You know, like that my actual relationship and how I am with one person, they think, oh, it's just us. But <laughs> no, <laughs> when something happens, everybody is affected by it. You know, everybody. So I think in the old days, in the villages, that's why they would choose, you know, <laughs> who you would be with to make sure, <laughs> try to hold the harmony down in the village. You know, okay, you, 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 you. <laughs> no, no, not, no, not you two. <laughs> Because it was going to disrupt everything. So because they knew they watched you grow up and who you were and where you were going. And they did ceremonies with you <laughs> to help you. 
you know. So some of that's probably lost, you know, even in those who do still choose. I think probably maybe some of the indigenous teaching and ceremony around that is um, lost to some extent because there's a lot of suffering over there in some of those situations. But, um, you know, uh, that place, you, I want to go back to the beginning where you said someone's, you know, talking and or is taking up space and then it, begin, it spans out to this huge um, political historical story, you know. And, and then you're, you're ready, you know, all right, let's, <laughs> let's have a riot, you know, up in here. Because <laughs> your mind's gone, you know, gone there. And I think that um, in, in one way, there, that's a valid emotion, a valid feeling to have and to acknowledge it. And um, to, you know, don't just let it go by, like, oh, I shouldn't have that because I'm in a spiritual space. Everyone should have their voice and they can speak as long as they want, but I'm pissed off, you know, <laughs> about it. That's okay, you know. And then um, while I know sometimes I might be, I have felt that, and while I'm, if I'm busy seething, I don't, I miss something that might, I might need to hear, even if it's not those very words. Because most of what we need to hear is not in the words, it's behind the words. You know, it's between the lines. That, and that's what I learned. It's always between the lines that I need to hear, you know, what people are saying. I almost listen to all Dharma talks that way. And, uh, you know, the, the exact, every now and then maybe one or two words. But really it's something else being, you know, brought. Because the words are just the first embodiment of the thought. We're going to use embodiment, and then there's something else underneath it that is being presented to us that's beyond the words that only we can intuit. And we develop that from sitting, that way of seeing from sitting. You know, so you're welcome. Yes. I was about two years in the practice, we were having an informal, very polite Zen breakfast. And everybody's chatting about the Dharma, and it's good. And at one point, um, with my own background, I just was, I got a little irritated and brought up class. It was like the oxygen got sucked out of the room. Uh -huh. Everybody just went, uh -huh. and no one made a, there was no move. I can still feel pain, actually. Yeah. There was uh -huh. no movement, like uh -huh. nothing. Uh -huh. Uh-huh. And, um, and I never brought it up again. So we start our own Zen center and then we can do what we want. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, but never again there. You know, yeah. never again there. Uh -huh. and, uh -huh. and I, you know, that's the thing that, the thing that strikes me about Zen is because there's, there's a beautiful strength in silence. And there's uh -huh. real love in silence. And then there's violent, oppressive, Exactly. You know? Yes. And, and knowing, and I think Zen centers do not distinguish between the two. Often. Yeah, often. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes uh -huh. when I go to the mothership, which I dearly love, <laughs> dearly love people there, and I, you know, when I walk in and it's like, yeah, yeah. And so I'm yes. just curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think we do, and I think we're at the point now where others like yourself, 
you know, and your partner, Laura, you know, really are beginning to shape uh, the Dharma by who we are. We're walking it out that door, you know, we have to. And so um, maybe they're, they're, they weren't quite ready. And I feel the same with, you know, this book. And, um, and I imagine that's why I came out in a book, because I was silent. So, <laughs> so this is what I meant to say in the last 10 years. <laughs> well, I was there, but I just didn't know how to do all this, you know. So, uh, and I didn't, you know, and I didn't want to do it the same way others because it just felt like it was um, butting their head up against a brick wall. And then still, even to this day, because uh, I think the desire for things to change um, immediately is just a false, it's just that, just a desire, really. It's just, and, and so even in that desire, you know, there's one thing I learned in, in Nishra, and you can have a lot of desire. And in, while you're having the desire, you, you try to look into it to become enlightened to the desire. So in Nishra, like they, they, is Nam-myoho-renge-kyo, you hear people chant that. And like, oh, these people are chanting for things. And, but in there is something, if you keep going, you know, um, you start to realize that, like I used to always chant for a job, a partnership, and housing. And every time I turn around, I'd lose the job, lose the partnership, lose the housing. You know, it's like, okay, this is getting like redundant. You know, <laughs> and it would happen like every five years or something, every three or four or five years, it's the same three things. And I said, oh, well, okay, chant again for the right job, right partner, right housing. And then it dawned on me that it was trying to teach me something about partnering our people, you know, how I lived and, and, and what I was doing with how I lived and all the, and, and what the work I wanted to do. And when I went into that, I was able to stop that chanting for the same thing. So the desire awakened me. So the desire awakened you too in that way that you started the you know, Brooklyn Zen Center and others are starting Zen Centers. Um, and to uh, find a way that um, there's uh, quite a bit of dialogue and counsel uh, within, within the, you know, the um, Sangha, find ways in which people can speak, you know, and um, not only be silent, you know, and, and that the speaking still is in alignment with um, the way the Dharma is being presented. And so there's an action reflection, you know, like you're talking, action reflection, and you're talking are, are circles in which you can at least express some of what's coming up for you. Um, this is something that I've always tried to uh, push to at uh, San Francisco Zen Center. And I just, uh, I said, oh man, we need to talk. People, need, we need to stop, stop everything. That's what I want. Can we just have a moratorium on <laughs> everything? Like, you know, I did. I asked the teacher, can all the teachers stop and go to the Zendo? And all, and everybody who's working, go to the Zendo. Everybody just stop for a week or two. Everybody. And they like looked at me. <laughs> Interesting. How will we keep going? And then therein lies being caught in the material world which we all have that situation, you know, how do we stop and do our lives, you know, go to work and stop too, you know, how do we do that? And so I think, um, I think that there's an awareness, there's desire, and, um, you know, there's also a way of shaping it, you know, the way you need to shape it.
know, to step out, you know, um, when, uh, you know, Zen, which was Chan, right, in China, um, and we're not doing Chan either, so don't get that confused, <laughs> but Zen comes from Ch Chan, Chinese Chan, and um, uh, they shaped it like scholars, you know, they, they shaped the Dharma only for scholars, so that's why we have this black, long scholar's robe, you know, and um, whereas before it was just a saffron wrap, you know, in India. But when it got to China, they shaped it to scholars because it was for scholars in their minds. And they needed to study it, the practice. Like, what is this? We're going to study it this way. When it got to, you know, Japan, then um, they had to put their underwear in here. So we got the white juba and the kimono, which I don't have mine on. It's just too hot. <laughs> Mine's is too hot. And so um, that created the layers that we have. We have four, I think we have more layers than any ordained people, you know, in the world. So, so, so we still have, so they shaped it the way they needed to shape it. And they shaped it around, we began around a lot with the samurai coming to temple. The samurai came to temple. So they can, you know, they had to drop their gear outside, you know come in, then go back and put on all their armor and, and go. So it was shaped for them, you know. So um, if you go to San Francisco Zen Center, you see some of these uh, sculptures that were particularly about uh, warriorship and, and, and protection and fighting. They're not Buddhas, they're not Kuan Yin's or anything. They're just about that uh, old history. And so, um, so I think the shaping it, um, to the people the country and the time is important, you know, um, to the practice. And um, I feel this that I'm bringing, I'm not the only one that talks about race, sexuality, and gender, uh, an awakening to it. Uh, but I um, made a great effort to make it about my experience, you know, because I think people could understand it better. Because I wanted folks who didn't really practice Buddhism to read it. And like my family, I try to write things that my family would enjoy reading too, but they don't read it. Anything, <laughs> that's true. Families just—they say, "I know you. I don't need to read your book," you know. But you know, it's okay. Uh, but I think that it's um, uh, not—I'm not the only one that's writing and talking about it. I think sometimes putting it out there in writing is a helpful thing, though—a helpful. Uh, way to begin the dialogue and help people um, find a way to uh, talk about it rather than um, be quiet. I've, I've been at, uh, at the table when class has come up as well. You know, someone was, t you know, they kind of made a mistake anyway, talking about a plate. They were talking about the plates and how um, particular plates had monograms and how um, their plates where the servants could have their, only had their fingers at, their plate was made so the servants' fingers weren't in the plate. So those plates that had a little ledge, are, that's how those were designed. And they were talking about it, and the more they talked about it, the more you realize <laughs> this person came from some very, you know, place like Buddha, <laughs> you know, very, you know, upper, upper, upper. <laughs> and everybody got really quiet as they talking about the servants. <laughs> 
you know, at the table, you know, and I think that um, this uh, not knowing um, there needs to be more education around other things. So a lot of people come to Zen without having even um, gone to school to a lot of schooling to, as well. So, you know, history, studying black history or other people's histories and, you know, just studying more than Dharma books. You know, a lot of people have like a whole wall, it's a Dharma book and no books from anything else or novels or any place, nothing else. And I think that that is, uh, that could be a serious situation. It's not expansive. So I, I, I do ask you to read more than Dharma. And you know, once you start, you go, well, I got to keep reading and reading and reading because they're really good. But, and they really help, but it's important to read other, other things besides the Dharma so that you're, you're more um, aware of others' voices and teachings, you know. You don't have to become it, you know, because some people then they, oh, I'm going to go over here, and then I'm going to go over here. Each book they read, they're going to that gate, you know. Unless that gate's opened up in front of you, which has happened to me several, you, you just don't, you know, walk into it, you know. Um, I've been pointed to some things in books, and those gates haven't opened for me, you know, to go in. So maybe one day they will, and maybe not. Not for me, you know, so. Time. Okay. So I think, and if there's not any more questions, and I'm not feeling there is, that's a good time to stop. Yeah. So no more questions. Okay. One more. That's it. Um, more of a comment of how to communicate the body mm -hmm. and the different situation in front of the culture system and how easily a garden becomes and able to go through the practice. And then coming to a space like this weekend where the guard is still up and because it's just an extension of outside world, just because the space, however beautiful the teaching, however beautiful it is, I still come with what, what's in the outside world, and it takes and it takes time. Um, and it takes time to be able to uh, trust the white person that's next to you, because again, it's not different than the outside. And part of that trust, I feel, and I feel. When we have these conversations, and just the person being able to just sit in silence and give space for other voices to rise up. Um, so, um, and part of it, and I, and I wanted to echo what um, the woman who spoke of just a little bit more, and it's just that our bodies come with this knowledge before our minds. So my body is in tune to the experience of, of whatever kind it is, and I'm living it. Anyway. And so to just um, not dismiss it, and I say, yeah, and however we're doing it here and not speaking it out, uh -huh. Uh -huh. just to say, like, this is, this is it. Uh -huh. You know, the, the body is telling us the story. 
And so, yeah, <laughs> and so thank you for speaking and saying, you know, the difficulty, you know, sitting next to, you know, a white person and you're not. And um, <clears throat> I think it happens the other way around, too. And I think it's honest to, to speak of it. I remember um, one person speaking that to me and, and I was very surprised at Zen Center. And she said a, a black man sat next to her and she got up and moved. And this person had been practicing for almost 20 years. So it's just inside us, you know, like you said, embodied, and um, the distortions we talked about yesterday are inside of us, the distortions of the identity. Not the identity, so we say, oh, but the distortions inside of the identity. What's the distortions in the whiteness, distortions in the blackness? Um, what Zen gave me an opportunity to do that I think I wouldn't have is to come into a, a micro environment of the world somewhat you know, somewhat, and then go, go out, in and out, you know, so it's kind of like when we go home. In a moment, you know, or in the end of the day, we're going to all go home and we're going to do things we never would do in here, you know, <laughs> well, you know, be different when we get home. And so that's when you go to the cultural sanctuary, you're home, you'll kick back and you don't have to worry about it, you know, it's what you feel, you know. And so, uh, so coming in here and to the Zen Center for me became the, um, the practice of being in the world because I was going to have to deal daily, I mean daily, with um, you know discrimination and um, acts of hatred, you know, happen all the time. And and either with, I was going to lock myself behind a door or I was going to learn how to walk in the world. And I thought Zen would give me that. Not to stop all those things that are happening, but to give me a full life. And so sitting next to that person will begin to help me have a full life. Because when I get on the bus, I can't say, okay, you, you, and you get up, and you, you, and you <laughs> sit over here by me. Or we do it, though. We look around like, and I used to tell people, like, no one sits on the bus next to me. They do not. They like, some people stand there by an empty seat. And so that, now how do I sit with that? How do I uh, live with that, that knowing? First, I let that person have their, whatever they're having, <laughs> hatred. And I just pay attention to my own uh, body and breath. You know, I say, I come back to this body, I come back to this breath, and I come back to the magnificent of the nature of life. I come back to the taste and fragrance of liberation. I have that, I'll share that with you. I have, I'll bring it, I thought I brought it, maybe I did. But I'll share that with you later. Um, so uh, it's, it's a constant um, practice. It's not one that's um, where the environment always is gonna be designed for you. And that's hard work. It has to be always designed just for you. Our people have to be the way you need them to be. It's too hard. It's better to shape this because you have complete control of this, of this sculpture <laughs> and sculpt it the way you need it to live in the world. You know, um, I think I'm, I'm special, I guess. <laughs> so I've had some things that are really like mind blowing that have happened to me in the streets. I don't even. I didn't write about them because I think people would just be blown away completely blown away. 
And then yet I get up and I become a priest of Zen. So what is that journey? You know, what is that? And, and how do I share that with those who feel no matter who they are, you know, they're falling off the edge of this earth because of how we are with each other or how we're not <laughs> with each other. So I just encourage you to just keep, stay, 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 and go through that. You're here already. If you weren't here, I wouldn't tell people, come and go through that. I don't, I don't tell people to do that. Like I said, I don't recommend my path. <laughs> you know, I don't. <laughs> I do not recommend my path. You know, you have your own. So, thank you. Okay. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.